When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, from time to time, I like to think about creating aquariums based on some of those sort of seldom replicated habitats and ecological niches, the weird ones. I, I, the ones you see maybe a, a picture of on, uh, uh, on, or a video of now and again, and you think, that's interesting, fishes live there, hmm, <laughs> what's going on there? I find that there's something oddly compelling about recreating the function and the form of some of these rather exotic or unusual habitats. And I wonder why they haven't been replicated more in the past. And then I realize it's likely because we don't really understand all that much about how they function. Perhaps we as aquarists haven't done much with some of these unusual niches for the most absurd of all reasons, because no one else has tried it before. Ugh, that makes me sad. So it's time to be brave and maybe try a few of these things. I'll give you a little air cover here and tell you that I've tried various versions of some of the ones I'm going to talk about today, and much, much more needs to be done with them, however, other than my, you know, rough experiments. I just can't help but wonder, what insights can we gain by learning more about them? Well, let's look at a few of my personal favorites, and then I'll give some thought to recreating them in our aquariums. Hopefully, it'll just get your ideas flowing, and you probably have tons of other ideas for habitats that you've seen over the years and have never played with. Let's talk about one of my favorite ones, African temporal pools, also known as vernal pools um, or ephemeral pools. Now, Africa is like a veritable treasure trove of really amazing, unusual ecological niches for aquarists to study and to replicate in the aquarium in both form and function. And we're only starting now to really appreciate how amazing Africa is in terms of all the unique habitats available. Now, vernal or temporal pools are typically found in areas comprised of various soil types that contain clays, sediments, and silts. We're kind of familiar with that, right? They can develop into what geologists call hydric soils, which are basically defined as a soil that formed under conditions of saturation, flooding, or, you know, ponding long enough during the growing season, when the plants grow, to develop anaerobic conditions in the upper part of the soil. Well, that's kind of interesting. Now, a unique part of the vernal pools is what is essentially an impermeable, an impermeable layer of substrate called the clay pan. Now, these substrates are hugely important to the formation of these habitats as the clay soils bind so closely together that they become impermeable to water. So when it rains, the water percolates until it reaches the clay pan, and then it just sits there, <laughs> filling up with decaying plant material, loose soils, and water, you know, the kind of stuff we like. So yeah, the substrates are of critical importance, not only to the formation and the uh, continued uh, existence of these habitats, but to, also to the aquatic life forms which reside in these pools. So let's talk about killifish for a second, because killies live in these types of pools. In fact, one study I found on the much-loved African genus Nothobranchius, you know, the beautiful annual killifish, indicated that the soils are the primary drivers of habitat suitability for these fishes, and that the eggs can only survive the embryonic period and develop in a specific soil type containing alkaline clay minerals known as smectites, which create the proper soil conditions for this in the desiccated pool substrate. That's really interesting. So 
the resulting sort of mud-rich substrate in these pools has a really low degree of permeability, which enables water to remain in a given vernal pool even after the surrounding water table may have receded. And of course, a lot of decaying materials like plant parts and leaf litter uh, are present in the water, which would impact the pH and other characteristics of the aquatic habitat, right? Now, indeed, many ephemeral pools have high levels of dissolved organic carbon, such as humic acids, derived from these decomposing plant parts that give that water that brown color that we all love so much. So interesting, right? Now, you have to wonder, it begs the question, it's kind of a hostile environment. Why do fishes even live in this environment? I mean, they're typically small. These ponds are isolated and prone to weather disturbances and extremes of temperature. Now, there are some interesting advantages that these habitats offer when you think about it. First, they have significant food resources because they're a favorable environment for many small invertebrates and insects that live in them. In addition, they're home to fewer species, which reduces competitive pressures on the fishes. Most ephemeral pools are populated by a single species, or perhaps maybe two or three, and they all utilize different food resources within the pond, which I think is interesting. Now, it's also interesting to note that ecologists have found that the water in ephemeral pools may stay alkaline, despite all of the leaves and all the botanical materials present, because of the buffering capacity of the alkaline clay present in the sediments interesting and to literally cap it off if this impermeable layer were not present the vernal pools would desiccate too rapidly to permit the critical early phases of embryonic development of the nothobranchius eggs to occur so yeah these fishes are tied really intimately to their environment i find that fascinating so in the dry part of the range of the genus nothobranchius which is southwestern mozambique many pools are inhabited by fishes that are pretty well known in the hobby, Nothobranchius furzeri, Nothobranchius orthonatus, and they're usually isolated from more permanent bodies of water, and they're filled exclusively by rainwater during these periods of high precipitation. Now, interestingly, some of these pools may occasionally be connected, as they are essentially depressions in the dry savanna in which water drained from one of these larger bodies of water starts to accumulate in one of these small ones. But these pools and their cycles directly impact the life cycle and the reproductive strategies of the annual fishes which live there. Temporary poolfish have made incredible adaptations to deal with this fluctuating environment. It's a little wonder why many of these fishes are incredibly easy to keep in the aquariums because they adapt so well to so many, things, so many different things that we throw at them. Now, the fascinating and kind of almost sci-fi concept of embryonic diapause, which is a form of prolonged yet reversible developmental arrest, is really well known to scientists and lovers of annual killies. The occurrence and length of time of diapause varies from species to species, yet it's considered by scientists to be an evolutionary adaptation and an ecological trait in various populations of Nothobranchius tied directly into the characteristics of the ephemeral habitats in which they reside. Talk about a really cool relationship between the environment and the organisms that live there. This is like the textbook example of that. Now, diapause assures that species will survive by enabling the annual life cycle of these fishes to be completed and it can even be affected by the presence of adult fishes in the habitat. So in other words, it's not a good idea to hatch if potential predators are around, right? So it's a fascinating adaptation. Since the embryonic phase of most nothobranchius is a relatively long period of their lives, in fact, perhaps the most significant period of their lives, uh, and in some species it's the absolute longest period of their life, the factors which impact embryonic development are really, really important. Okay, my head's about to explode with all this stuff, but it's really a cool idea. So 
in the hobby, we tend to use peat as the substrate and the incubation media, you know, for annual killifishes. It's worked great for many decades in this capacity, and it does. But I can't help but wonder if using hydric soils, i.e. clay-rich materials, in order to more realistically replicate the function of the substrates found in these African temporal pools could yield better, more consistent egg development or production in annual killies. I can't help but wonder. Now, I'm not a killie expert. I dabble in them. I've dabbled in them for many years, but I've never really looked at this that seriously. But in general, sediments and mud in conjunction with botanical materials are things that we as hobbyists, I think, should do more experimentation with. I think there's a lot to unlock there. I can imagine an aquarium design simply to replicate a temporal pool, a mud hole, or even a flooded field. So it would be like a substrate-only tank. That would be incredibly different. And I can only imagine the discoveries that you could make by recreating the function and look of the habitat of that kind of aquarium. In other words, run it sort of the way we do the urban agapo that we talk about, but with a slightly different soil composition and stock it with annual killifishes. Run it that way for several months, i.e. the wet season, and gradually you know, desiccate it just like you would the urban agapo. Get those fishes out of there and run it dry for the appropriate incubation period. And then flood it as you would uh, any other, you know, urban agapo setup. Like this is a standard thing now. And then see what kind of a hatch you get. Will you get a more even hatch? Will you get a, uh, a less uh, even hatch? Will you get a more productive hatch? Who knows? I'm not sure. I haven't played with that with the Nothobranchia yet. I've done it with South American Achilles, and I can tell you it does work, and it does work well. And I've done several generations in my South American tank with Nothalibius Campo Grande. Uh, Nothalibius minimus Campo Grande, a South American annual killifish. And it's really cool. And I had plants and the whole thing. I've, I've showed you pictures of that before, and we'll talk about it again in the future. So this is an idea you could run with. Those of you that are into annual killifishes, it, it, more or less a permanent setup for annual killifishes. I think this would be something really interesting. You can raise them in there, let them live out their whole lives, or most of their whole lives, until you desiccate the, you know, the pool again and start the cycle over. I think it's entirely possible to manage a system this way, and it's something that's wide open for more experimentation. Ooh, that's exciting. Let's talk about another one. Let's go to the other side of the world here. Here's another habitat. We've talked about this before, and I know people have played with the idea, but we've talked about it more in form than in function. And I'm thinking, let's think about this. The peat swamp forests of Borneo. Now, Borneo is widely known as one of the most biodiverse ecosystems on Earth, and the peat swamps that you know, are there cover around, I don't know, 12 to 15% of the land in all of Southeast Asia. It's amazing. Peat swamp forests are a form of tropical forest in which really saturated soil called histosols, or histosols, excuse me, by geologists, they inhibit the decomposition of organic matter, like leaves and, you know, parts of the trees and the forest vegetation, which leads to the formation over time of peat. So they're really, they're wet and acid sulfate type of soils. Now, in areas with poor drainage, peat can accumulate over really long periods of time until it rises above the normal groundwater levels, which creates raised bogs known to, uh, known to ecologists as ombrogenous bogs. These are fed only by rain and thus have their own water table, different than the surrounding area, which is really cool. So the peat retains the water via capillary action and drains into it. The bogs can be as much as 60 feet, which is about 20 meters deep, and are largely deficient in nutrients because of the lack of input of minerals. The leachate of organic compounds from the peat causes the water contained in these bogs to be really acidic, like pH 4 or lower. So these ombrogenous peat swamps can develop in areas between rivers and locales with year-round local rainfall as well. So they're really interesting structures, and they're home to an enormous diversity of life. So here's where it gets interesting to us fish geeks. 
Studies have shown that approximately 200 plus species of fishes have been found in peat swamps with approximately, I think it was 80 of these species restricted to this habitat alone. And about 30 or so are known as, uh, are what are known as point endemic species found only in single locations. That's a lot of species in a very unique habitat, isn't it? Now, some scientists suggest that the conditions in peat swamps have favored the evolution of smaller specialized fish species and that each area of peach swamp could support its own group of endemic species. This is really interesting and really important. Now, some species from these habitats are classified as vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered, so it makes sense. Uh, now, species from the genera Spera ichthys, Desmopuntius, Resbora, Beta, and Chana are pretty well represented in these habitats as they are in the hobby, too. Now, the average water depth in these swamp habitats ranges from like a half an inch to as much as like three feet. So that's like, what, less than 0.1 meters to like 0.9 meters. Now, researchers have found that these peat swamp fish communities are typically more species rich in, in habitats which offer higher levels of dissolved oxygen, which is interesting because we tend to think of the swamp fish as being found typically in low oxygen environments, right? I guess you can't fight nature there. That being said, there's plenty of fishes which have evolved to live in these habitats. For example, beta hendra, one of the beta species that's known only to be found in the Sambangu forest. Uh, these are specially adapted for life in the peat swamp environment with its lower dissolved oxygen levels and lower oxygen levels. According to Fishbase, it's found in peat swamps with a depth of about 5 to 50 centimeters and with no water current. And the water is typically shaded by trees and bushes, and it's collected among aquatic and marsh plants. That sounds kind of classic, right? Another gem that I found for you, I'm going to read this if I can find this quote here. Okay, another gem from my research about dissolved oxygen levels and their impact on fish populations is this one. Forested pools and canals in these regions have consistently lower dissolved oxygen levels than the rivers and streams in the region do. This is probably due to the inherent nature of the aquatic habitat in peat swamp forests, where dissolved oxygen levels are kept low due to the high amount of tannins in the water from the high organic matter content of the peat with the accumulation of decaying organic matter depleting dissolved oxygen levels. Additionally, there is low to no water flow, especially in the pools, which further ensures low levels of dissolved oxygen regardless of lower surface temperatures of forest water bodies. Low concentrations of dissolved oxygen can make water uninhabitable for certain fish species. Therefore, the forest is likely to be a more challenging environment for fish survival. That's from Yule and Gomez, 2009. Interesting though. Now, did you see the, hear the part about tannins keeping dissolved oxygen levels lower? That's the first time I've heard that correlation being made in a scientific paper. Now, although the next sentence clarified it for me when it touched on the high level of organic matter depleting dissolved oxygen levels. So my thinking is that the tannin is the result of the organic matter, but the organic matter itself is responsible for the lower oxygen levels. That makes sense, right? Yeah, I think so. And we all know by now that too much botanical material added to the water in your aquarium in too short a period of time can deplete resolved oxygen levels, leaving the fishes gasping at the surface. So if there's one common botanical-style aquarium disaster trigger, that would probably be it, going too fast with too much. So see, that happens in nature, and it also happens in our aquariums. You can push it, but you can't hide from the consequences of trying to beat nature's rules. Okay, getting a little off base here, but it's interesting stuff. Remember I was telling you, you could learn about the function of these environments and how they can work in the aquarium too. Now, many of us have mixed feelings about utilizing peat in our aquariums, and we've talked about this over the years. However, there are some sources of what are considered sustainably harvested peat available. You have to do your homework to find them. 
Um, Canadian sources in particular have done a very good job. Some of these Canadian uh, peat farmers have done a good job of creating renewable or sustainable sources of peat. Not perfect, but pretty darn good. <coughs> Excuse me. Are there alternatives? Well, sure, I think so. Uh, in peat swamps, the peat layers can be in excess of three feet deep. So that's really deep. And the, the, these are found, you know, next to rivers and streams and lakes. And the seasonal flooding inundates these forests for short periods of time. And it leads to an influx of sediment and mineral enrichment during the high water period. So these soils are best replicated by using what I'd call non-traditional substrates like coconut-based materials, finely crushed botanicals, mud, sediment, stuff like that. Now, if you're thinking that we should come out with a nature-based substrate inspired by this habitat, you're correct. <laughs> this is my little commercial again. I've already formulated a version and I've been testing it for quite a while and we'll probably be releasing that in the next few months. So look forward to, to sharing that with you. Anyway, there's some characteristics of these soils which will make them challenging in aquariums. Now, for one thing, the physical characteristics of these materials will make them behave differently in water than traditional sands and other substrates. Like peat, for example, in its natural state, contains excessive amounts of water and it's not exactly sturdy like sand or gravel because it's high permeability and it has very low shear strength and of course it has a really low ph so basically what that means is when you're trying to root plants in it and so forth it falls apart if we're trying to replicate the habitat as faithfully as possible we'd want to use rodi water or water with minimal to no carbon and hardness and a soil with properties similar to peat this can be challenging to manage for many, of course, because the resulting pH. Not impossible, simply challenging. Stuff we've talked about many, many times over the year. Now, we're going to have much, much more to talk about with this unique habitat in the coming months. So stay tuned. But I just wanted to put it in your head that managing a, or, or creating a peat swamp biotope for the sake of not just the look, but to actually try to replicate the function of this habitat could be really interesting and really rewarding. And again... Sure. Can, can some of these fishes adapt to a more traditional aquarium setup? Absolutely. That's how we've been keeping them. But wouldn't there be some advantage gained by trying to put them into conditions that are so similar to what they've evolved in under the eons, over the eons? I think that would be really fascinating. If for nothing else, it would be a great exercise for aquarists to stretch our, you know, creative muscles, so to speak. Think about that one. Now, another one of my all-time favorite habitats is the Pantanal of Brazil. And I think the flooded Pantanal grasslands are just classic. Now, thanks to my friend Ty Streitman, who we've had on the show several times, we'll have Ty on again real soon, we've seen some really interesting and inspiring images of this most unusual habitat. Now, the Pantanal, which is derived from the Portuguese word pantano, meaning swamp, wetland, or marsh, is the largest wetlands region on Earth, full stop. It's primarily located within the Brazilian state of Mato Grosso do Sul. It also extends into the state of Mato Grosso and the nations of Paraguay and Bolivia as well. I mean, we're talking about a region estimated to be as large as 75,000 square miles. That's a huge, huge, freaking huge area. Essentially, it's a large depression in the Earth's crust, and it constitutes a big river delta in which a number of rivers converge. So what they do is they deposit sediments and other biological materials over time. Now, of course, with a habitat this large, there's multiple ecosystems contained in it, and as many as 12 have been defined by scientists. Pretty amazing. Now, our main focus is, of course, the fishes, and the Pantanal offers plenty of places for fishes to reside in. The cool thing about the Pantanal is that as much as 80% of its floodplains submerged during the rainy seasons and it, it have been recorded. Um, and, you know, I, I butchered that. Let me, let me backtrack on that because I didn't really express that correctly. As much as 80% of its floodplains 
are submerged during the rainy season. So we're talking about sometimes the, the rain is like 60 inches or 1500 millimeters of rain in a, in a season. That's amazing. Now this corresponds to water depths, which can fluctuate as much as 15 feet or five meters in some areas. And it's home to an, an astonishing variety of fishes and aquatic plants. And there's so much to it. And there's this enormous expansive, shallow, slowly flowing water with very small velocities, less than four inches or 10 centimeters per second. Uh, there's dense vegetation, terrestrial and aquatic, which tends to be the norm there. That's kind of interesting too. So you have a mix of grasses and some aquatic plants. Now the water itself tends to be turbid and maybe even a bit anoxic at times. And interestingly, the highest levels of pH and dissolved oxygen in these habitats tend to occur when the water decreases and plant growth is stimulated. Curiously, scientists are not 100% certain if this is because of the plants going crazy with photosynthesis or mixing of the water column occurs due to this influx of water. So macrophytes, which are aquatic plants that grow in or near water and are either emergent, submergent, or floating, supply the shelter, the food resources, and the cover for all the fishes that live there. Still other fishes consume the aquatic insects and the microorganisms and biofilms that are recruited in this habitat. Many are just simply well adapted to the relatively oxygen-poor waters in this you know, enormous floodplain. So it goes without saying that this is a remarkably complex habitat with multiple options for replication in the aquarium. It requires a little bit of homework. I think your first decision is to decide what, if any, aquatic plants you'd use. Now, aquatic plants that are found in the Pantanal habitats include, you know, popular species like Polygonum, Salvinia, Pistia, Ligia, and more. You could also incorporate some marginal plants like Acarus, Papyrus, and other sedges to replicate, you know, the flooded or emergent terrestrial plant component that you find in these environments. Personally, for substrates, I'd use a fine sand, perhaps in a powdered form, you know, like aquatic plant substrates or something. Uh, on the surface, you'd certainly want to incorporate some leaves. They're ubiquitous in this environment. Specifically, leaves like jackfruit, guava, and live oak would work well to represent the appearance and the function of uh, the leaf litter component. In addition to leaves, you'd probably want to incorporate some other botanical materials like seed pods. If it were me, I'd be inclined to use a scattering of the smaller stuff like dregia pods, mocha pods, parvaflora, admittedly none of which are geographically correct and actually found in this habitat, but they replicate the look of the materials found in it. It's that whole generical, generic tropical concept that I rant on and on about. And of course, with all that vegetation, you're bound to find some roots, branches, and twigs, so that would be really important to include. You could go with small ones, big ones, whatever, depending on your preferences. How would you scape a Pantanal-themed tank? Well, the habitat's just filled with possibilities for replication. You could represent a nice flat field or get a little more daring and do a sort of shoreline feature with sloping substrate, terrestrial and aquatic vegetation all mixed together. And there's all kinds of things you could do. With so few representations of this amazing habitat in the natural aquarium hobby and so many opportunities to express it utilizing botanicals and plants and fishes, it tells me that not only is the Pantanal simply ripe for replication, it's a perfect ground floor opportunity for studying, learning, discovering, and creating evolutions and even breakthroughs in the hobby. I can go on and on and on about these things, but these are just a few of the ecological, ecological niches that I think we as hobbyists should do a little bit more work with in our aquariums. The idea of turning to nature for inspiration is as old as the aquarium hobby itself. However, in recent years, we seem to have moved a bit away from that, drawing more inspiration from other people's work as opposed to nature. I mean, it's great and a great thing. It's symbolic of the interconnected nature of our global hobby. However, with so much emphasis on replicating the work of other hobbyists, it's nice to gain a fresh perspective from nature once in a while. 
incorporating it into our little toolbox of ideas in our own way to create something that we enjoy, something that's truly unique and which gives us a real slice of the bottom as well, and perhaps an insight into the function of these precious habitats that are vanishing every year. It's a lot to think about, and it's a whole lot of fun. Stay creative, stay curious, stay innovative, stay bold, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.